I love Medicine Hat. Like I said, born and bred here, I believe in this community and I am passionate about this community and about us not being the forgotten corner. Wouldn't it be great to have a member of parliament that one is actually from Medicine Hat, actually cares about Medicine Hat and can actually voice an opinion about Medicine Hat. So it's certainly going to be not the easiest of elections if I continue to run in this riding, but I believe in the people here and that if they want to no longer be the forgotten corner, they need to be sending somebody to represent them that isn't going to let it continue to be the forgotten corner. Welcome to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt. I'm here alongside my good friend and co-host Jeremy Appel and our editor, producer, and all things in between, Mo Cranker. Fellas, how's it going this week? Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, whatever. It's quarantine. Is it not quarantine? I don't fucking know. But I'm fine. Thanks for I mean, you know, whatever. Yep, I get it. I get it. Mo... I think you're there, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, all right. Okay. Well, we won't do any of that. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I started yeah. holidays today, so. Yeah, no one ever asked Scott how he is. That's true. I, 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 I hope he's. You guys okay. ever fucking think about checking in on me? Jesus. Yeah, well, you have like a wife hanging, and stuff. I'm hanging but... by a goddamn thread here. Yeah, no, I things are good. I'm doing you really have a well. Family. Day one of holidays, so here's to two weeks of sitting around drinking and not having to do anything. I don't even have the pressure of having to take like a trip, so it's it's going to be great. Anyways, let's get on to the show. This shit bores me even. Okay, so we want to, uh, normally each week we uh, have like a topic or some sort of thing that we want to specifically focus on, but today is a little bit different because we want to introduce who someone who we hope will be a recurring expert kind of like our second resident expert along with Dr. Roberta Lex here and uh, we think that this guest today is going to be a name that you will know very soon and it will have nothing to do with us and I think you'll understand why in a second so let's just get to the show. If the name Elizabeth Strange doesn't ring a bell, it's because when she ran under the banner of the federal NDP in the 2019 election here in Medicine Hat, Carveston Warner, she did so as Elizabeth Thompson. Now back to her maiden moniker, it is this podcast's opinion that Elizabeth Strange ought to be a well-known name no matter where she goes. She may be born, raised, and back to living in Medicine Hat, but at just 27 years old, she sure racked up a broad worldly education. She has a Bachelor of Arts double major in Human Rights and Women's and Gender Studies from St. Thomas University in Fredericton, a Bachelor of Law from Bangor University in Wales, where she also obtained a Master's of Law in International Human Rights and International Criminal Law. In September, she will begin her PhD in law at the University of Reading in the UK, and when she's done, she absolutely plans on leaning into the perfect name of Dr. Strange. Oddly enough, she doesn't want to be a traditional lawyer, but she does want to be Prime Minister of Canada and has since she was seven years old. And with those qualifications, she would and should be the first leader of our nation who is also a pretty damn good belly dancer. 
She considers herself a nerd because she collects books and board games, but she also collects scotch and gin, so she's definitely the kind of nerd you want to hang out with. We are very excited to welcome Elizabeth to the Forgotten Corner this week for what we hope to be her first of several appearances on our show. Whew, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you just introduce me everywhere I go now? Right? I know. I feel like I this is my new thing, like writing people's intros and uh, doing it like Chaucer from the Knight's Tale style. So listen, so as we, like, as we said, this is kind of an episode where we want to uh, spend some time introducing you to our listeners. Um, some of our listeners will definitely know you, um, but I think some of the things we're going to talk about today are going to be things that they probably didn't know about you. So first things first, born and raised in Medicine Hat. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about um, growing up here and what your childhood was, childhood was like? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm a third generation Hatter. My mother was also born in Medicine Hat. Uh, my dad's from Montreal, though. Uh, so I have an older brother and an older sister. I lived in the same house my entire life. Uh, I went to George Davidson Elementary School, and then I went to Crescent Heights High School, where I had some teachers that really shaped who I am today. I've spent some time working out at the military base. I mean, I'm a hatter born and bred. So hatter born and bred often means um, one type of political leaning, um, regardless of how interested in the subject they tend to be. You're not, and you said, you, I've heard you say a few times that you've wanted to be prime minister since you were pretty young. Um, have, you, have you always had this progressive mindset, and how did you develop that living where you live? I mean, so I first got interested in politics because my family lived in Ottawa for a summer while my dad was on a government project. So I had that experience of living in Ottawa and going to Parliament Hill every day. But to be honest, growing up in Medicine Hat, where the presumption is conser conservative until proven otherwise, before I really understood party politics, I was like, well, I'm conservative, I guess. I'm from Medicine Hat. That's what everybody is here. I had progressive opinions from a young age, but because it was just surrounded by conservatism, I didn't really know what the alternative was and that my ideals actually aligned differently. So it wasn't really until... I was maybe 12 or 13 that I finally identified that I was not conservative in any way. <laughs> um, that caused a bit of a riff in the household because growing up, uh, my parents were conservative. I have brought them to vote NDP now, but it took me a while to officially um, identify as NDP because I think like most people with federal politics, the view is conservative or liberal, that's the only way to get ahead. And I eventually just identified that, no, I am NDP. That's where my, my allegiances lie, my politics lie, and I'm going to be true to what I believe and try to do the best for people. So you were a new Democrat before 2015. I supported the NDP, but I didn't get my uh, NDP membership actually until 2018. And was that a result of them being a significant player in provincial politics at that time? Uh, no, it was actually because I moved back from the UK and I, I kind of said, I think it's about time that I buy a membership because I think a lot of people support a party, but they don't necessarily go as far as buying a membership. And I'm not on this show to like sell party memberships, uh, but being able to be a, a party member is 
it, it's kind of really important and it gives you access to more things and, and more information. Um, so it wasn't because they won in 2015. It was because I was, I guess, at a point of adulthood where I said, yeah, I should probably buy a membership. And I, I had membership in a party when I lived in the UK for a UK party. So I thought... Was it Labour? No, actually, it was the Women's Equality Party of the UK. So I want to back up a little bit because um, that your timeline is like odd to me that it all happened in such a short period. Like you've done a ton of stuff and it was on the back end that you came home to, to run for the NDP. So I want to back up a little bit and uh, you clearly had to have gone straight to St. Thomas out of high school. There mustn't have been any break. So when did you know that this was the path? Like, did, was this a meticulously planned path that you've taken or did it develop over time? Like, how did you get to St. Thomas taking what you're taking? So I was always one of those people that had an idea of what they wanted to do from a young age. I mean, being seven years old and saying, I want to be prime minister, while most of your classmates are saying, I want to be veterinarians or police or firefighters is a little bit out there, but I, I ended up going to St. Thomas University because I knew I wanted to go to university outside of Alberta because I wanted to develop a different perspective. Having grown up in Medicine Hat and knowing one perspective and being surrounded by this community, which I love, I knew I needed to get a different perspective. So I knew I needed to go outside of Alberta to get that. I looked at every single university in Canada I ended up applying to Simon Fraser University, University of Ottawa, and St. Thomas University. And St. Thomas University offered me a full tuition scholarship. So it's a bit of an obvious choice. And so you get to St. Thomas, and that's where you took your Bachelor of Arts, right? Yes, and so correct. what pretty interesting majors that, that you selected, and a double major, like you dove right in, where again, um, what, what was your interest in wanting to get into those particular fields? So when I was in high school, I was always very interested in human rights, and I knew I wanted to pursue something down that route, uh, and I knew I also wanted to do, I always used to say that I wanted to be a professional feminist. If someone could pay me money to move forward gender equality, that would be my ideal. Uh, so I knew I needed to do a women's studies degree. And St. Thomas University, for those who don't know, which most people don't even know about St. Thomas University, it's about 2,000 students, it's super small, and it's a liberal arts university, meaning that you have to take a little bit of everything. So in my first year, I didn't even take any of my majors. Uh, I took history, psychology, sociology, anthropology, science. I took a little bit of everything um, to give me that background to be able to then apply human rights and women's studies to different issues, and they really fostered that throughout the degree, was learning what the sociological aspect of something is within political science or uh, what journalism has to do with anthropology or what science has to do with economics. So it was very integrated and that's how I ended up having a double major and a double minor. I actually almost ended up with having three majors and two minors. My sociology almost became a major and I almost ended up with a French minor. So you like you liked school a little bit, did you? Just a little. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of typical for our best friends of the shows. They they tend to be real fans of going to school. So th 
after you got these degrees, this degree there, you went over to the UK and ended up in Wales at Bangor University. Was yeah. that something you'd thought about early on? And did you know about that school early? Was that someplace you wanted to get to? How'd you end up there? I knew I always wanted to go to law school, but in Canada to go to law school, you get a first degree or you actually only have to do two years, but most people get a full degree and then they go to law school for three years. Are you saying you don't have to get a four-year degree with six majors and 11 minors or whatever you have? You could have just done that in two? (laughs) Totally optional. So in about my second year of university, third year of university, I was starting to think about, okay, where do I want to go to law school? And I'd always thought I was going to go to law school at Queen's University um, because that is viewed as probably the most prestigious law school in Canada. But then some, well, one of my main professors, uh, Professor GNA, he had done his master's of law at the National University of Ireland in Galway. So that got me starting thinking about, well, why don't I do my law abroad? I knew I didn't want to be like an in-courtroom lawyer. And hopefully anybody that interviews me for being an articling student doesn't hear this. Um, <laughs> but I knew, I knew I wanted to like be a legal analyst or a politician or something along those lines that didn't actually require me to be admitted to the bar. So I thought, well, I could go and do a master's of law, but why not also do a bachelor's of law? Get two degrees. It's great. And in the UK, you can actually do your law degree basically straight out of high school. So because I already had a degree, I was able to do my law degree a year faster. So I did an accelerated law program. So I did my law degree in only two years and then my master's in one. So in what would have taken me three years to do a bachelor's of law in Canada and then two years to do a master's of law in Canada... I got both degrees in three years in the UK. So while you were cramming in these law degrees in the UK, you were also doing like really starting to get your feet wet on the political side of things, right? So can you just tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about some of that side of the things that you got into while you were in the UK? Yeah, definitely. Um, So in the UK, uh, student politics is kind of a whole nother world. I know over here in Canada, when we hear about student unions and student politics, we don't take them that seriously. They do very important work, but they're not a serious political player. But in the UK, they very much are. The president of the National Union of Students in the UK meets with the prime minister, meets with the ministers of education. Uh, They push forward bills through government So I got involved with the National Union of Students, uh, the UK-wide one, as well as the Welsh one. Um, I served as an executive member on the National Union of Students for Wales. And in that role, I helped draft documents for the EU referendum to help educate students on what the issues on the Brexit referendum were, uh, got students to vote, encouraged international students that had the right to vote, to vote in all the different elections. We basically created policy documents for what the student asks were for uh, the elections. Uh, we were involved in what was called the Diamond Review, which was basically a complete restructure of student finance in Wales and did loads and loads of campaigns across the country. Uh, and then at the National Union of Students UK, I went to the National Conference, which is essentially like 1,500 students talking policy, voting on policy, running elections um, to determine the future of the organization. And I was lucky enough to be there the year that they did the governance review. So they spent three years reviewing 
the structure of the union um, and then proposed a new governance structure, which we voted on and passed. Uh, and the National Union of Students represents millions of students. So it was pretty cool. Now, you were in the UK during Brexit. Yes, uh, I was. And, and you were also there the year before when the NDP won. Uh, I would yes. imagine those were two very different experiences uh, for a variety of reasons. Tell us a bit about that, uh, being in the UK when this party uh, you identified with most of your life formed government in probably the least likely province and then Brexit, which is a whole other ballgame, but you campaigned against it. So I guess tell us about that contrast. Okay. Um, so actually, quite interestingly, when the 2015 Alberta election happened, I obviously voted in it by postal vote, but when the day of the election happened and the results were announced, I was in the Netherlands at a law competition. Um, so there were students from across Europe in this law competition, and I was, I woke up in the morning to a message from my mother saying, you'll never believe what happened, the NDP won. And I was just exuberant, so excited. And, but then I was like, I can't share this with anybody. Nobody here understands what that means. So I was like, okay, no, I have to, I have to do this law competition. It's a law competition at the International Court of Justice, the highest court in the world. I need to focus. Um, so I got ready, went to the law competition and I was in the courtroom waiting uh, for the competition to start. And the team that we were gonna be competing against which was from Germany, I do believe. Um, one of the members on that team was from Canada, but from Quebec. And she comes running in and she's like, oh my gosh, you're from Alberta, right? What just happened in that election? And so I was very excited to be able to talk to somebody that understood what the NDP winning in Alberta actually meant. Everybody else in the room was super confused, but it was just, it, it was, I, I can't even describe the emotion that I was feeling. And it kind of actually helped me then with that day of law competition because I felt so energized and so optimistic about the future and about Alberta going forward. On the other hand, Brexit referendum was a bit harsh. The It took a really long time for the results to be counted for that one. And I stayed up as long as I could um, watching the results. And I remember falling asleep and... I think Remain was in the lead when I fell asleep. And then I remember waking up at like four in the morning being like, I need to, I need to check what this result is. And I, it was, my heart just sank that they voted to leave. It was a very, very frustrating experience because I just passed my EU law class. So it was a little bit of like, I know enough about EU law to know that this was a stupid decision. Um, but also I was like, I didn't, I guess I didn't need to take that course. It was one of the hardest courses of law school and it's now just a waste. Uh, and it, it caused a lot of, of rifts in the law school, in the community. Um, it was almost like an overnight permission for people to be openly xenophobic. And it was, it was not a pleasant environment to be in. And it was so frustrating living in Wales where like Wales, basically every school hospital and road in Wales is from EU money because when Thatcher closed the mines, there was, there's no industry. So, so much of the infrastructure in Wales relies on the EU. And then most of Wales voted to leave 
And it was literally the, you're, you're biting the hand that feeds you. What was that for racial reasons then? Do you figure, like you said that this was just an invitation for xenophobia and was that prevalent in Wales? Like what, what was, what was the driving, the driving force for these, um, these folks to vote against that interest? Most of the time when I asked people how they were going to vote or what they knew about the referendum, it most of the time came down to one of two things. And one was the anti-immigration sentiment um, that they were really frustrated about the free movement of people that foreigners were coming into the UK and stealing their jobs and, and lowering the, the average wage because they would work for lower money. Um, and then the other argument that I often heard was that the EU is undemocratic, which as a law student was hilarious to me because the EU is actually a hyper-democratic system and the UK still has hereditary peers in the House of Lords, meaning somebody gets to help make laws just because their great-great-great-granddaddy did. Right. <laughs> That's pretty undemocratic. Yes, absolutely. So listen, now you you did a couple of dissertations while you were in the UK for your for your uh, um, degrees, your your law degree and your masters, and I just want to touch on those a little bit because they are extremely interesting. So when you were taking your uh, bachelor of law, you wrote your dissertation on children and youth mental health rights in Wales from a feminist and human rights based perspective. That is yep. a very uh, specifically and also broad-based, it seems, uh, kind of dissertation. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and how did you pick that topic? I didn't pick it. It was actually given to me. Um, so I was meant to, to pick a uh, dissertation topic. And what ended up happening was uh, one of the professors that I worked really, really closely with, uh, Dr. McDermott Reese. Uh, she was involved in the Wales Centre for Children and Youth Rights, which was looking, it was based in Swansea University, and was looking at expanding to the north, to Bangor University. So they had a list of research topics that they wanted researched to contribute to the work of this research centre and legal centre. Uh, so I was given this list, and I was mulling it over. It, it had different topics, like whether or not um, like spanking your child should be legal. Um, it had topics about child refugees. It had it, full spectrum of children's rights issues. And I, I was ha having a hard time trying to pick what I should focus on. And then Dr. McDermott Reese came back to me and said, actually, the Welsh Parliament or Welsh Assembly is planning on doing a national review of CAMS, children and child adolescent mental health services in the country. So they're doing this national review and they're going to be taking in expert ad advice on it. Could you research that topic so that we have research to then contribute to the Welsh Assembly? I was like, yep, sure. Cool. That makes it so I don't have to choose. So I, that's what I researched. And it involved, uh, we hosted a conference for uh, service providers and youth on children's rights. I helped set up a children's rights legal center in Bangor. Um, and my research mostly focused on uh, the issue of informed consent, because obviously when you get any sort of medical procedure done, you have to have informed consent. But the way that consent law for medical 
medical procedures works in the UK, it's, it's not an ideal system. And it's very much a lot of the laws on informed consent have been developed on cases that are like blood transfusions or transplants where it's you get it or you die. But that's not a reality with mental health services. With mental health services, there's a list of options of different procedures or services or medication or counseling that you could get. And because the informed consent laws developed in a very black and white manner, it failed to recognize that with mental health, maybe you should be giving the children the choice of what they'd like because there is different options. So that's what my research mostly focused on. I talked about something that I called the Cinderella phenomenon, which is the concept in law that you turn 18 and magically you're competent. Um, I think many of us might not remember our 18th birthday, but you're not that much of a different person when midnight strikes and all of a sudden you're 18. So that was my, my undergraduate dissertation. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and so I, I became a little bit of an expert in um, children's rights through my dissertation. Uh, and I got to go to like a, a children's rights conference at University of Liverpool. Um, and I love telling people that there is only one country in the world that has not signed on to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Do you guys have any guesses which country it is? You're going to say Canada, aren't you? No. Okay, good. Thank God. The UK? No, it's not the UK. The US. Yep, it is the United of States of America. Like <laughs> North, Korea, North Korea and Syria and Saudi Arabia have signed on to it, but the United States won't. Well, you know, they're... <laughs> well, we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't even know what to say there. But I do want to ask you, while Canada has obviously signed things like this, having taken so much in the field of children's rights, humans, human rights, uh, gender equality. And I know these are, this is now going to be a broad grade, but looking back at your home country, where do you, where do you grade Canada uh, on, on these issues? Um, because I know we talk a big game, but there's, I, you know, I think there's clearly room for improvement. Yeah. I mean, Canada internationally is viewed very well within the human rights world, but there are, there are definitely significant rooms for improvement. The most obvious and evident is the treatment of Indigenous um, people, especially women and girls, but we're not great with all human rights. And I mean, being a children's rights expert and going from a country, Wales, Wales was the first country in the world to have a, um, a report uh, submitted to the United Nations that was written by children. Um, so steps like that, that really involve children being involved in their own human rights, which is a part of the convention, um, Canada can make big strides in that. And I know within the, the UN reviews, Canada is always like, well, but we have different levels of government. That makes it difficult to make a standard of human rights. No, it, it makes it actually so you have more oversight, so that you have multiple governments being able to strengthen human rights. It, it, yeah. Yeah, it's um, not. It's, it shouldn't be an excuse to have fewer, uh, fo like less focus on human rights. So we 
we that was the first dissertation that you did while you were in the UK. The second one that you did for your master's, I think, is even more interesting. And uh, I have more, I think I, I want to learn a little bit about what brought you to this. Now, you didn't get to pick your dissertation for your bachelor's. You said, did you pick the dissertation for mas your master's, which was on female recruits to ISIS? I did choose that topic. Okay, so tell us about, like, it's, an, it's a very interesting topic, I think. So just give us a little bit of uh, the specifics behind that. My research focused on whether or not female members of ISIS could be categorized as combatants. Um, because one of my specializations is law of armed conflict. And within law of armed conflict, there are civilians and there are combatants. And there's different rights and kind of issues that come up if you're a civilian or you're a combatant. So my research really focused on the concept that ISIS is trying to nation build. You have to view it from their own perspective that they are trying to build a nation. And if they are building a nation, then any aspect that is contributing to the nation building is contributing to the efforts of the organization, which is then contributing to the armed conflict. So females that are teaching are technically helping nation build. People always hate it when I make this comparison, but I, I used a lot of Muslim feminist uh, and religious feminist perspective uh, to talk about the fact that the efforts of ISIS are based on their desire to be pious, which means that in some ways you can make parallels in the decision-making with nuns. I know that's controversial. My first university was a Catholic university, so whatever. Well, uh, I don't, uh, but, that's, there, we don't have too many listeners that would, are so silly that they would make such a uh, jump as to think you're that, actually that, that, saying that ISIS and nuns are the same, so you're good. Yeah, that, that, they're not does, the same. But, this does remind but, me of the classic uh, drill tweet. I'd like to issue a clarification on a previous post of mine. You do not, under any circumstances, have to hand it to ISIS. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, correct. Okay, so, yeah. uh, not none, they're not the same. Go ahead. They're pious, just like so, yeah, uh, the decision-making of nuns. Go. Yeah, so the motives, the, the drive is the same because it is a drive to be closer to God, to be pious. Um, and if you focus on that and the nation building, then you can view them as being active combatants, which in a very roundabout way, then allows them to be targeted by opposition forces. Um, so I looked, I looked at all of that and I also made a comparison to the Tamil Tigers, um, which was a nation building sort of terrorist organization uh, that was trying to build a nation and uh, had a very active female sector and everybody always asks me how on earth did you research ISIS? ISIS is actually very open about the recruitment documents uh, so I was able to get a hold of an English translation of a recruitment document that was for the Alcanza Brigade which is an all-female sector of ISIS um, and there's some really interesting information in there specifically about how they prefer to use Western and European converts as the mor morale police because they found that women that were raised in Muslim countries were a little bit more lax in their adherence to uh, the Quran, whereas women who converted uh, were a little bit more like to the letter 
So that is how I researched ISIS. I want to know how in the world did you manage to research how to join ISIS as a female and not end up with like uh, the FBI? Oh, I'm, def- I'm definitely on a fl- that. <laughs> right. I'm going to suggest it may, may have to do with the color of her skin. I well, mean, but yeah. she just finished saying that the Western recruited females that join ISIS are the most sort of indoctrinated about it and more most uh, sort of um, orthodox toward it. And I would think that, you know, somebody would have been like, who the hell is this Elizabeth Strange and why is she <laughs> researching all this? Between that, um, spending a substantial amount of time on WikiLeaks to look at like, documents regarding ISIS um, and buying books that were about like jihadi brides. I am definitely on some sort of watch list. Yeah. I don't know how you made it home. I'm, I'm, we're glad you did, but like. There's definitely an interesting story about that. So I not thinking about it, you know, my white privilege. um, I took my books. I was working still on my dissertation. So I took two of my books on the plane with me to read on the plane, not thinking, not thinking (laughs) about it. Literally one of the books was like Jihadi Bride. Um, So I'm reading it on on the plane and I end up sitting beside this very lovely man um, who was actually a law student from University of Manchester and he was Sikh. And he was like, if I took that book on, you know how much trouble I would be on, like be in. And so we had this very interesting conversation about the privilege of being able to research something without it casting a particular light no or kidding. or questions um me and him be- ended up becoming really good friends on the eight-hour flight to toronto um and i acknowledged him in my dissertation but yeah it was definitely a reality of like i'm researching something that if i was if i was muslim or if i was not white it would definitely call into question if i was actually researching it for academia or researching it for ulterior motives yeah, you would have gotten shipped off to some CIA black site. Yeah, we, we wouldn't know who you are. No, yeah. no. You would not have ran for the NDP. No. <laughs> so I think we've made it pretty clear to our listeners here today that you possess the qualifications to join the world of politics if you so desire. And I don't think it's even uh, close <laughs> compared to some of the people we know that run. So you came home, when did you finish? So when did you come back to um, Canada? It couldn't have been long before the election. Actually, so I came back um, Canada Day 2017 for Canada 150. I went to MC a friend's wedding in Fredericton. So I finished my dissertation while in Canada. Um, So I've been back in Canada since July 2017. Okay, so what, when you were here, did you come home with the intention to run uh, for the NDP? And I know, like, and why pick, when you did decide to run, why federal, why not provincial? Especially since, like you said, you had just been away when the NDP had won provincially and had made some waves as a party. So I didn't come back planning on, like, running this election cycle. Um, I was planning on, you know, like finding a job in my field and, and settling in to life um, a little bit before 
jumping in as a candidate. I, I knew I wanted to get involved in politics and, you know, be a volunteer, be a staffer maybe, but not necessarily be a candidate right away. Uh, and then I, I did consider being the provincial candidate, um, but I kind of, I didn't think I had enough experience and the party didn't feel like I had enough experience to, to do a good run. So they want to set me up for a future run in the next couple of election cycles provincially. But the federal one actually kind of just fell into my lap. I didn't pursue it. I got a phone call from the party asking me to run. What was that decision process like when you were asked to run, right? It wasn't something that you volunteered to do. Was there some reluctance? I mean, I think when anybody considers candidacy or, or is asked to be a candidate, there is a little bit of like, what is this going to mean for me for the next month, for the rest of my life? What is this going to mean? So there was a little bit of, okay, this is going to be weird. But the reason that I chose to run was because I had so many friends and family and coworkers. Because at the time, there was obviously Glenn Motts had announced his candidacy. I think the People's Party had a candidate and Shannon had been announced as the Green Party candidate. There was no NDP and there was no Liberal candidate. So I had all of these friends and family and coworkers that were saying almost on a daily basis, I heard it, that they had nobody that they could vote for, um, that they were concerned that there wasn't going to be uh, an NDP or liberal candidate for them to put their vote in for. So I chose to run not for myself, but for the people around me that felt like they had nobody to vote for. So I said, I I'll be that person. Even if I'm just a name on a ballot for you, at least you have that option because that's the whole point of democracy is to have the option to express your vote the way that you believe, not there's nobody for me to vote for, so I'm just not going to vote or I'll throw my vote away. Now, you've said that, you know, you want to make sure that medicine hatters have the option, but I think we can all agree here that you're bit more than just an option uh, on the ballot. And during that campaign, you referred to your uh, to an election as an extended job interview, where the voter looks at a candidate's qualifications, skills and experience before choosing a candidate. And you almost sounded like you really believed it too. But running in medicine hat, I think we can all agree that that isn't the case. Uh, you're probably one of the most qualified candidates I've ever seen in this region and with I don't want to sound insulting but you probably could, would have lost to a pylon with a CPC logo and I just <laughs> like I, I guess I want to know if if you really are serious about where you want to go politically do you see yourself doing so from Medicine Hat running here and if so why? I love Medicine Hat. Like I said, born and bred here, I believe in this community and I am passionate about this community and about us not being the forgotten corner. Wouldn't it be great to have a member of parliament that one is actually from Medicine Hat, actually cares about Medicine Hat and can actually voice an opinion about Medicine Hat? So it's certainly going to be not the easiest of elections if I continue to run in this riding, but I believe in the people here and that if they want to no longer be the forgotten corner, they need to be sending somebody to represent them that isn't going to let it continue to be the forgotten corner. And of course, uh, you ran for the federal party. You're also heavily involved with the provincial party, right? I mean, that is, from my understanding, where your 
involvement with the New Democrats started. Uh, the, of course, there's a pretty big difference between the federal and provincial NDP, uh, particularly as it pertains to the role of the oil and gas industry. Uh, how, how do you navigate that tightrope? When it comes to party policy, um, a lot of people don't know how the party comes about deciding on their platform. It's decided by the members uh, through councils and conventions. And yes, there is a divide between provincial and federal NDP. And like you said, it is mostly about oil and gas industry and pipelines. But that is because there hasn't been a strong enough voice of NDP in Alberta at the federal level to then present those opinions at the decision-making platform to develop the party policies. So if we start believing and, and fighting for the NDP in Alberta to then send representatives to the federal NDP council convention, they can then help make the party policy that's going to include the Alberta voice. Because currently, I'm going to be honest, it's mostly being made by BC, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes because we're not sending the voices to help develop the policies. But aren't you conflating uh, support for the oil and gas industry with Alberta's long-term interests? I mean, there are some people that'll say that Alberta lives and dies on oil and gas, and I have my own opinions on that. But it, it, it's a reality of the economy of Alberta that it is currently very heavily reliant on oil and gas, and whether or not that is a long-term strategy or not, the transition off of it is a reality that we can't, we, we can't just tomorrow decide to no longer have oil and gas in Alberta. That, that's not going to work. Any transition to alternative energies and, and green sector jobs is going to require Alberta opinions. In the, in the same way that like decisions on fisheries would be stupid to be made without the Maritimes. It's a reality of their economy that fisheries is, is a significant part or lumber industry in BC. And, and how would you respond to criticisms of the NDP that they're essentially liberal light in that particularly the provincial parties in Alberta and Ontario, when they were in power, they pivoted hard to the center and, and, and sort of how, how do you reconcile that with this more idealistic, uh, social justice-oriented view of politics that you have? I think in any, any level of politics, the reality is that when you're not in power, you have lofty ideals. Every party has these concepts of like, we're going to do these great things. Um, but then once you're actually in government, you see the reality of the numbers and the constraints and balancing what people want and what you want. And it's, it's a balancing game that doesn't really become evident until you're actually elected. So I think that's a major thing. Like, honestly, you see it at every level of government, um, the shift from before being elected to being elected. And it's not politicians lying, it's politicians not being entirely aware of the restraints of the positions. If you're aware of those restraints today, is, do you still see politics, elected politics, as the best avenue for you and what you bring to the table to affect change? I definitely went through like a, uh, I suppose a... <laughs> I don't know, a life crisis when I was about 12. And I realized 
I mean, I wanted to be prime minister since I was seven. And at 12, I realized the restraints of politics that, you know, you're constrained by the government, by bureaucracy, um, and by the desire to be reelected. It, it's just a reality for all politicians. So I went through a phase where I was like, no, I don't want to be a politician. I, I can make more change by working in charities or by being an activist. And so I kind of flip-flopped back and forth on is politics honestly a good way for me to create change in the world? And I realized probably actually during like the EU referendum that whether or not I ever become elected, involvement in politics is a reality that change is done through. So I need to be involved and I need to be in the conversation and aware and whatever level I am at, as long as I'm at that table, that's important to me. So I would be happy being a staffer, but you know, it, you got to make those connections to get in to being a staffer or to being a candidate. So we'll see. So part of the reason we had you here was to sort of introduce you to our audience. But I also wanted to pick your brain on a recent development. Canada recently lost its bid for a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council. Norway and Ireland were selected in our place. Now, this is the second time that we've ever lost a bid for a seat on the Security Council. The first being under Stephen Harper. Now, we actually got more votes under Harper for our Security Council bid than we did under Trudeau. But I want to ask you first, just broadly speaking, what happened? So, I mean, a major contributing factor to Canada losing that bid was that we were a decade behind, basically, on, on campaigning. Because Ireland and Norway announced their intent to run and started their campaigning to run for the 2020 spots about 10 years ago. Um, so they, I mean, just on a very, very basic level, already had the time to be campaigning um, before Trudeau decided uh, to, to throw our hat into that election. Um, there's obviously other contributing factors. I mean, Norway contributes one of, I think it's the largest amount um, of GDP to the UN. So just on a financial aspect, like Norway is really well respected within the United Nations for contributing extensively um, to the United Nations. Ireland, um, I do believe Ireland contributes significantly to the UN uh, like military or the peacekeeping forces. Um, and I mean, Canada has had some questionable things that the other member states were concerned about under the last universal periodic review. So basically every five years, um, all the U other United Nations members uh, review the other countries. So 2018 was the last time Canada had a periodic review. And it was raised that there was concerns that Canada has not signed on to a number of treaties that people were very aware of. Um, so one of the major, major ones being the Convention for the Rights of Migrant Workers. And down here in Medicine Hat, we know we have lots of migrant workers. Red Cliff Greenhouses are basically completely um, staffed with migrant workers. And, and the Canadian agriculture industry 
could not survive, honestly, without the migrant workers. So the fact that we haven't signed on to protect their human rights, other countries, especially the countries that these people are coming from, are very aware of that. Uh, we also haven't signed on to the Convention on Enforced Disappearance. Um, that's another one that they're concerned about. And we also haven't signed on to the Optional Protocol on Torture. So these kind of big issues. And also uh, countries noted the extensive abuse of human rights um, for Indigenous people to the point where North Korea pointed it out. When North Korea calls you out on something, you know you have a problem. So there's those factors. Also, within the UN Security Council, you have five permanent members, and the permanent members are China, France, Russia, UK, and USA. Um, and these permanent members, so they're always on the Security Council, they don't have to go through elections, but more importantly, they have a veto power. So if a resolution comes before the Security Council, the permanent members can say, nope, don't like it. Um, and each one, so it doesn't have to be all five together have veto power, one country can veto any resolution. And I think for some of the other countries, um, the fact that our two main allies, the UK and USA, have veto power, why should Canada get more power? We don't actually get to see which countries voted for us. Um, so we'll never really know what the factors were that, that officially made that decision. But if you actually look at the like election results for Ireland, Norway, and Canada, we aren't that far off from them. I think it's maybe like 10, 10 or 15 vote difference um, from us to, to Ireland or Norway. Um, so there's not that many countries that were like, now nah, we don't like Canada. It, but th it is a reality that Canada, I mean, Canada positioned themselves as a major player on the international stage during like UN peacekeeping missions, like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we were a major contributor of UN peacekeeping forces. That was kind of our identity was we were the peacekeepers. Um, and that has kind of faltered. Um, and I would say probably starting even with Chrétien, um, it, it kind of faltered. Um, and to try and, and take that back up is really difficult. Um, and I think there's a lot of rhetoric within Canada that is anti-United Nations, I mean, it, it, around the world, but it's a lot of people don't actually understand the extent of the United Nations and, and how important it is. I'm hoping that this pandemic will kind of prove that, that in, in the modern society that we live in, you can't be isolationist. There are a lot of, particularly from the right wing, there are a lot of criticisms of the United Nations, right? That it's this you know, hang out for dictators of the third world and why should they have an equal voice to democracies like us? None of us, of course, buy that line, but it's quite prevalent, uh, especially if you get to like the far right, like conspiracy theorists, which we know that the conservative party is somewhat beholden to. How, how do you respond to that argument? Like you mentioned that North Korea censored Canada on its treatment of indigenous people. How, how do you respond to people that say, well, what, what, what right does North Korea have to criticize anyone's human rights record? I think you have to look at why the United Nations was originally created. The United Nations was created in 1945, after World War II, as a way, as a platform for all countries to have a dialogue, to prevent future world wars to protect the security and peace in the world. So, okay, yeah, 
all countries are not perfect. Every country has problems. Um, and why, why should a country that, you know, we view as better, like Canada or the United States or the UK or France, why should we have any more voice than countries that have more population? Um, they're, they're, the country's opinions are just as important to be heard on a world stage. Because if you're having a conflict, there is no if you're having a fight with your family and you exclude one member of the family, is that conflict going to be resolved? No, you need to have that person in the room. Right. Even if that member of the family is someone you don't like. Countries like people talk about countries, especially like the United Nations, like it is an entity. And I guess it is. But the fact is, is like, there are millions of people that are living in these countries. Countries are made up of individuals. So you might be hating on Saudi Arabia or North Korea or the United States or China or whatever country, but fine, hate, hate the obscure, wibbly-wobbly existence of the country, but don't exclude those individuals, the population, from accessing the important resources that the United Nations provides. The United Nations vaccinates half of the children in the world. You know, given that the Harper conservatives were very sympathetic to the mindset we just critiqued of this very colonialist view, I think, of the United Nations, that we, the Western democracies, should be making the decisions in the world, and then these third world countries will do as we tell them. But he, I also mentioned first, he got more votes than Trudeau for his uh, Security Council bid. Why do you think that is? Why did Harper get more votes than Trudeau, who made this a priority, at least ostensibly? Like, was it a matter of Trudeau just wanting it too bad? And so the rest of the world were like, yeah, I don't know. I they, didn't want a they didn't want a drama teacher on the uh, Security Council, man. There's no place for a drama teacher. With good I was gonna say, are are you trying to say that like Trudeau came on too hard? The rest of the yes, world he came on too strong. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah. I I, I didn't want to go there, but yeah, that that is what I'm referring to. I I mean, it's definitely possible. Um, but like I said, it's really hard to know what the decision making process was for each of those countries voting, and we will probably never know. Um. I don't know. Like it, it's hard to say. I think the the world platform has definitely shifted since Harper's run, and I think as well you have to look at the countries that we were running against. I can't off the top of my head remember what countries Canada was running against under Harper, but you know, Ireland and Norway were are good members to be on the Security Council. So maybe it was just that factor that. There were other countries that deserved it, clearly. I mean, yeah. like, this is the thing, like, part of having a country that you can, quote, unquote, be proud of that people like to say a lot is being able to understand where your country's sucking. Like, if you don't, if you're not willing to criticize or to admit or to talk about the things that you're doing as a nation that are, like, suspect and just maybe with gusts up to downright goddamn deplorable, then you're absolutely as bad as anyone that you oppose. 
I don't care what side you're on. Oh, the right, they never listen to reason. Well, if you don't, if, if being on the left or being a centrist or a progressive or whatever, if that means that you're not willing to admit that Canada isn't as uh, awesome at this stuff as we claim we are, then you're part of the problem. And it doesn't matter. It's okay to admit that we haven't done it the right way always and that we have ways to, that long ways to go to be a country that maybe even deserves one of these seats. That is uh, very true. I, and I, I mean, I think that, again, as Elizabeth said, we don't know how any of the countries voted or why, but I think we can reasonably assume that Trudeau's lofty rhetoric on re-engaging with the United Nations, on indigenous rights, on the environment, rang completely hollow to the rest of the world. Well, it obviously rang hollow to some people. Like, like she said, we don't really know, you know. But what we do know is that we can openly admit that our, our record on these things isn't as good as we claim it is. And it doesn't matter what other countries think of that. It needs to matter what we think of it. We're the ones that have the, the ability to actually affect change within this country. So who gives a shit what Norway or, or fucking Zimbabwe thinks of us? Like we have our own shit to get together and that's what we should be focusing on as a nation. I, I remember when you were running for the New Democrats last year, I uh, interviewed you about Canada's role in the world, which I was asking all the candidates about. And you talked about the need to reform the United Nations. What reforms would you like to see? Because I think that there is, for you know, the UN is, of course, valuable for all its flaws. But there are flaws. And what can we do to mitigate them? Everybody that criticizes the United Nations, that they assume the people that are pro-United Nations think that the United Nations is, is sunshine and daisies and hunky-dory. Honestly, anybody that's involved in international law knows that the United Nations is flawed. Um, it's the best thing we have right now, but it does need to be reformed. And one of the biggest areas that it needs to be reformed in is the UN Security Council. Those, I mean, I don't think that any country should have veto power. I think that is suspect um, because it, it actually causes a lot of things to not go forward because you have countries that for a long time have been enemies, the United States and Russia, there is a long track record of if, if one country wants a, um, a resolution to go forward, the other one will veto it. So the existence of veto power for any one country is questionable. But if we want to continue having permanent members, we need to be reviewing that those permanent members were selected in a different era. And it was based on which countries are major players on the world stage. So yes, of course, China, France, Russia, UK, USA are major players on the world stage and were at that time, but we're forgetting countries like Canada or like India, the world's largest democracy does not have a permanent spot on the UN Security Council. That seems a little bit colonial <laughs> for us to right. ignore that voice. Um, there's also a lot of issues with bureaucracy with the United Nations. I mean, not to sound like a UCP supporter, but there's too much red tape. In, in the United Nations. <laughs> he should appoint an associate minister of red tape production. <laughs> we should send uh, Grant Hunter, shit. send Grant Hunter to Geneva. 
Oh my yeah. God. There is too much red tape. You're right. <laughs> um, but the UN does a really, a lot of amazing work. And I think one of the things is that it's gotten so large and it's, it's good that it's gotten large because it covers so many different aspects of society. Everything from like food security to civil aviation uh, to uh, meteorolo- meteorological. So like there, the United Nations has an organization that takes care of meteorological issues. So things like tsunamis and um, hurricanes, countries are made aware of um, in a timely fashion. But because of that, everybody only ever hears about the General Assembly and the Security Council when there's a whole load of other great things that the United Nations are doing. That is a wonderful time for us to wrap up this episode. So we want to say thank you, Elizabeth, so much for being here, for uh, letting our listeners know who you are. Um, We hope that things are going okay for you during all of this pandemic stuff and that things are uh, swimming along. And just, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Uh, we just want to quickly say thank you to the uh, our patrons that go way above and beyond. Uh, Chris Sterwold, thank you so much for your support, man. And to Big Red Ray, love you, buddy. Appreciate your support as well. To everyone else, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Jeremy, Mo, love you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.